Welcome to Living Truth Radio, a ministry of Living Truth Christian Fellowship with Pastor Michael Lance. It's our goal to build up believers and to reach out with God's truth to all people. And now, here's Pastor Michael. We're going to study 1 Samuel chapter 9. So why don't you open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 9. And just as a little bit of way of review of what we've learned, um, remember back in chapter 8, the people of Israel wanted a king. They wanted a king like other nations had a king. Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. And uh, earlier uh, with the worship team, Lord, we, we said this as well. And we are, Lord, so grateful to watch what you have done. Lord, it's been a hard and long journey, uh, and there's going to be more to it. But Lord, we have seen you work uh, many miracles, including having today be the signing day, which we weren't expecting. And so, God, we give all praise and glory to you. Uh, Lord, we are excited about what you're going to continue to do through Living Truth. Uh, and we just, um, uh, just give you this service tonight and ask you to continue to work uh, in your mighty way. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, but anyway, so we, you know, we know that that's what happened, that they were asking for a king. And God told Samuel, tell him what it's going to be like. I'm going to tell you what it's like here. Tell him what it's going to be like to have an earthly king, but we're going to let him have what they want. So Samuel, of course, did what God told him to do. And then, interesting, like Pastor Michael said, then Samuel told them all to go home. And he wasn't sure if Samuel was just kind of pouting about it and, you know, I'll go home, but I don't think so. I think uh, that when we see what Samuel does, we'll find out that's not who he was in character, but... um, what we will see is that the reason Samuel sent him home is he basically was saying, go home and wait because God will give you what you want. So he told him, go home and wait, and you'll find out that you will get a king, and you will get a king like the other nations because that is what you asked for. Now, as we go through this study tonight, and I'm telling you, I'm just so full of stuff, I have no idea what all is going to come out. Um, you know, as I mentioned to you before, Uh, Part of the reason we study verse by verse, and even through the Old Testament, some guys say, why do you go through all that Old Testament stuff? Well, I tell you what, one thing you're going to see is all through Samuel, uh, 1 Samuel 9, you're going to see Jesus everywhere in here. And that's an awesome thing. And number two, there are so many lessons for us to learn, practical things that God is going to show us through this. But one, one of the things I want you to kind of filter it with tonight is that we, of course, have been going through Romans on Sunday mornings, and Pastor Michael has done such an amazing job uh, in, in navigating us through that book uh, and, and what it means in terms of God's sovereignty versus man's free will. Okay, And I, I know that you guys have been learning a lot through that. And we're going to see, it's, you know, it's one thing to talk about it theologically and doctrinally, but what we're going to do tonight is we're going to see in 1 Samuel 9, we're going to see the, one of the greatest examples of how both are true. God is sovereign but man has free will. And so, as you're reading through this with me tonight, I hope that through this event that took place in history that you'll kind of keep that in mind and and be looking yourself as we do that. So, 1 Samuel 9, uh, starting in verse 1. Now, I do have two, again, electronic devices up here tonight. One of them is my phone. And I really thought about uh, doing what some of the pastors are doing these days and allowing you to text me questions in the middle of the message but then I thought, but I won't know the answer, so why bother doing that? But uh, here's my Bible, and, and here's my notes. So, uh, verse 1, now there was a man of Benjamin. Now, we're not going to get very far before we stop. 
there was a man of Benjamin. And one of the things that I want to do is to help prepare us for this new character that we're going to be seeing about this king that Israel asked for. His name was Saul. And in order to do that, we need to get a little background, a little history, and then that way Pastor Michael hopefully won't have to cover it too much as he continues on in here. So I want you to go back to Genesis chapter 35. Genesis 35, starting in verse 16. And we're going to learn a little bit about this uh, man of Benjamin and about the tribe of Benjamin, who Benjamin is. In verse 16 it says, Then they journeyed from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel, you remember Rachel, went into labor and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, meaning as she was leaving this earth, she was dying, she called his name Ben-Oni, which meant a child of sorrow. Um, But his father called him Ben-Yamin, or Benjamin. So we see, first of all, that this tribe of Benjamin, Benjamin was born uh, by Rachel as she died giving childbirth. And it was a sorrowful time, and yet um, it, was, it was one of two sons born to the wife uh, that Jacob loved, Rachel. The other one being, of course, Joseph. Now move on down to verse 23. It says, the sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. So, distinguishing between uh, which wives birthed these uh, sons. And then it says in verse 24, the sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. Now, Benjamin being the youngest of all of these brothers was a protected young man. And we're going to see that, and then we're going to see how that plays into the tribe of Benjamin. In fact, Benjamin was so protected that um, he did not even go and travel. You remember the story of all the brothers traveling after they had you know, tried to basically do away with Joseph, them traveling to Egypt and coming in contact with Joseph. But Benjamin wasn't sent. He stayed home. Uh, flip over to, to Genesis 42. Genesis 42. Verses 3 and 4. Genesis 42, verse 3, it says, So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, and here's why. For he feared that harm might happen to him. You know, he, as far as he know, he he'd already lost Joseph. And he didn't want to lose this other son by Rachel Benjamin, and so he was protective of him. And interestingly enough, if you flip over to chapter 45, uh, after Joseph reveals himself and, and uh, you know, all that took place there, even Joseph seems to favor Benjamin more, of course, than he did his other brothers. If you look in 45, verse 21, Genesis 45, 21, It says, the sons of Israel did so, meaning he was sending them uh, home with stuff. And and it says, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. 
And to each and all of them he gave a change of clothes, but to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. So while the other brothers got a bunch of underwear, well, I guess so did Benjamin, but Benjamin got 300 shekels of silver to go along with his underwear. So he was being protected. He was given more uh, by his brother Joseph. Now it's interesting because uh, the tribe of Benjamin, you know, you remember when all the tribes were given a place to live, right? And this is where each one is to go. Now Benjamin was right in the center of Judah. And here's this big old Judah and this small little Benjamin. And they were basically protected for the most part by the tribe of Judah, by, the, by that much larger tribe, uh, except for at one point, which we'll get to in a minute here. So Benjamin, in essence, was protected by God. God used different ways, different people um, to protect Benjamin, but he was going to protect that small tribe of Benjamin no matter what. If you, uh, you don't have to turn to it, but Deuteronomy 33.12 says this, And of Benjamin, he said, The beloved of Yahweh shall dwell in safety by him, and Yahweh shall cover him all the day long, and he shall dwell between his shoulders. And you know what that picture is? You know, you're, you're thinking, what, between, between the shoulders, what does that mean? Well, think of it, ladies. When you are protecting your little child, and you have that little, what do they call it, the moby or whatever it is? You know, you wrap it up. And where does that child sit? Between your shoulders. Or dads, how often do you take your child and, and hold them between your shoulders in front, but also, you know, when they want to ride, they jump on the back and you hold them between your shoulders. Benjamin was protected by God, and that's the picture that was given, that God holding Benjamin between his shoulders. Now, if you need more proof that God was protecting that small tribe of Benjamin, remember this, the Apostle Paul, if you look in Romans 11.1, 1, you'll see that the Apostle Paul was a Benjamite. All of those years later, the tribe of Benjamin was still around. And isn't it interesting that this Benjamin's, uh, Benjamite was also originally named Saul? Now, there was a time when the tribe of Benjamin was almost wiped out and very well could have been if God hadn't placed protection on him. Uh, in Judges 20, 35, and 36, you can turn there if you want. You don't have to. Um, but it says that the Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel. Now, isn't that interesting? The Lord defeated Benjamin. I thought the Lord was protecting Benjamin. Well, he was. But there was a horrible, and we're not going to go into that in detail tonight, but there was a horrible sexual sin committed by some men of the tribe of Benjamin. And they would not deal with these men in the way that they should have. And so they were almost completely wiped out. Verse uh, 35, 36 in Judges 20 says, The Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel, and on that day the Israelites, that means all the rest of the Israelites had ganged up on Benjamin, uh, because of their lack of dealing with these men, and struck down 25,100 Benjamites, all armed with swords. Then the Benjamites, verse 36, saw that they were beaten. You go a little further down to verse 46. It says, On that day 25,000 Benjamite swordsmen fell, all of them valiant fighters. 
But 600 men turned and fled into the desert to the rock of Ramon, where they stayed four months. The men of Israel went back to Benjamin and put all the towns to the sword, including the animals and everything else they found. All the towns they came across, they set on fire. So very interesting. God held this tribe between His shoulders, but when it came to this terrible sexual sin they didn't deal with, it says God defeated them before Israel. And the rest of the Israelites basically took them out. And they were almost completely wiped out. And yet God still protected them as He said He would. Now you look at that and you go, boy, this was terrible and what an awful thing. And there was civil war and, and all this stuff. But remember, as Pastor Michael has shared, um, the time uh, of the judges before there was a king. Judges 21:25 says, In those days, speaking of the days of the judges, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. Now you could put that together and say, you mean everyone was able to do as they saw fit because there was no king? No earthly king? And you might think that, but God sent judges. The key there is, remember at the time, and at the time that we were uh, talking about uh, where 1 Samuel began, the time of uh, Samuel's birth, and the time of the battle when they brought the ark out, that there was no spiritual happening in Israel at this time, basically. In those days, everyone was doing as they saw fit. But it says because they had no king. But the truth was... Israel did have a king. They had a king. Their king was God Himself. The problem was is that they would not have the type of relationship with God that they were supposed to have. They were told in the Mosaic Covenant that if they followed the law, they would be blessed. And if they didn't follow the law, they were in deep trouble. Okay? And what happened? they most often didn't follow the law. They would not obey God. They would not have the relationship that a subject of a king is supposed to have. The relationship is the king tells you what to do and you do it. And a good king, of course, protects his people as they obey the orders of the king. That's not the relationship the people of Israel were having with their king. They were most often in disobedience, and this is why their history looks so terrible at so many times. All right, half of verse one. Moving on. So, this man of Benjamin, whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bacorath, the son of Aphiah, the son of a Benjamite, a mighty man of valor. Now, his actual, the actual way you pronounce his name is Kish. But I didn't want to say that because I thought you guys might get hungry and leave. So we're just going to say Kish. So here's this man of Benjamin named Kish. And it says of him that he's a mighty man of valor. Now, valor can be translated a couple of different ways. And you know some of the scholars differ on what they really think that meaning is. It could mean that he was just a man of wealth. Uh, we know that he must have been somewhat wealthy because he had some donkeys that we're going to read about in a little bit here. Okay, So he had to have some wealth. Uh, it could be that he was um, powerful. It could be that he was well-respected and powerful and had influence. It could also mean, because the name itself actually can mean bow, as in bow and arrow. So it could be um, after a warrior, and, and his parents named him that because they thought he might be 
a mighty warrior. All of those things, or it could be all of them. It could be one or, or all of those. We don't know for sure. Um, but we do know that he was a person at least of some kind of influence, a mighty man of valor. Verse 2, it says he had a son whose name was Saul. Now the word Saul means ask or asked for or asked of. Okay? Um, so that was, that was Saul. He was asked for. And of course, we know that Saul was asked for by the Israelites. It says this man Saul, it says he was a choice and handsome man. There was not a more handsome person than he among the sons of Israel. From his shoulders up, from his shoulders and up, he was taller than any of the people. Some people think, well, did he have like a really long neck? You know, he's like a giraffe. No, that's not what it means. It was just a figure of speech, meaning he was basically taller than any of the rest of the people, and he was handsome. Now, what we notice right away right here is, is the description of Saul has to do with his appearance. It says he's, he's tall and he's handsome. So we notice that that is what seems to be the only thing that the Bible has to say about Saul at this point in time. He's a tall and handsome guy. The interesting thing is it doesn't say anything about Saul having any kind of relationship with God. And the reason it doesn't say that is because he really didn't. You'll see that as we go a little further. He had no relationship with God. Um, so the only thing he had going for him at this point in time was he was tall, dark, and handsome. Now, um, look it. You can see that the people of Israel, if they're going to ask for an earthly king, they're going to want a big guy. Because if we look at the customs of the day, oftentimes the king uh, not only went out to battle with his warriors, but sometimes, as we know of later uh, in the book of Samuel that we'll see, sometimes that king went himself or his chosen gladiator would go out and fight the battle, win or take all. And so you would want someone who could be mighty in battle, and you would want someone, in a natural sense, who was uh, a big person and one who looked the part, you know, who looked kingly. That's what they were looking for, and you can see in a natural sense why they might want that. And think back, uh, you know, all the way back to chapter 4. I think part of what happened is, you know, they, they got discouraged. They didn't understand because their relationship with God was so poor. They didn't really understand when they brought the ark out why the ark didn't work. Remember that? And so now they're going, well, look, I don't, we don't even know if God's really with us anymore. You know, I think that some of them might have said, we don't even know if there really is a God anymore. Sound familiar? And so they figured the only way that they were going to be able to fight all the battles that they, they faced all the time was to have this earthly, strong, big king. Um, and remember, the guys that they were going to fight, uh, they knew a little bit about the Philistines, and they probably knew about this family from Gath uh, that had some pretty big guys, like maybe nine foot tall. And of course, we know one of them named Goliath, but remember that Goliath had brothers. I would imagine that that was pretty well known um, in that area. You know, and it's interesting that when you think about it, actually studies show, I don't know if you ever look at some of these studies, but studies show that um, people who are attractive seem to always be put in leadership positions. Have you ever noticed that? You know, it happens all the time. We look at people like, you know, you look at athletes and, you know, yes, if you're a great athlete, you're probably going to get, you know, some commercials. But if you're a great athlete and you're, and you're really good looking, 
you're going to get a lot more commercials. You're going to bring a lot more money in. We, as people, seem to be attracted uh, to people that we look at and think, boy, they really look good. And we oftentimes put them in places of leadership. But, of course, we know in Galatians 2.6, it tells us that God doesn't look at things that way. Galatians 2.6 says God does not judge by external appearance. That's how we do it as men. And any qualification that we might have for leadership needs to come from God and our heart for God, not from anything in our physical appearance. Verse 3 says, Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to his son Saul, Take now with you one of the servants and arise and go search for the donkeys. Verse 4, He passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalishah, but they did not find them. Then they passed through the, the land of Shalim, but they were not there. Then he passed through the land of the Benjamites, but they did not find them. When they came, verse 5, to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come and let us return, or else my father will cease to be concerned about the donkeys and will become anxious for us. So he, uh, verse 6, he the servant said to him, Behold, there is this man of God in this city, and the man is held in honor. All that he says surely comes true. Now, let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us about our journey on which we have set out. So I want you to picture this now. Um, they, they get to this point, and Saul's kind of worried that Dad might be worried about him, thinks, hey, maybe we ought to just give this thing up and, uh, and head out for home. But his servant says, wait, wait, wait. There is a man of God in this city. Um, back then they called him seers. We're going to see that in a minute. Um, or, or the word prophet came later. And, you know, he, he might be able to tell us where these donkeys are or where, why we're still here on this journey or where we might need to go. And so this servant convinces Saul that this would be a good thing to do. So Saul gets convinced and he, and he you know, says, okay, you know, we're going to do this. But I want you to notice a couple of things. Number one, notice that there's no interest in Samuel about anything spiritual, even though he is called by the servant a man of God. They only care about one thing. They want to find these lost donkeys. Now, isn't that interesting uh, that they would go to this man of God with no concern about what he might have to tell them about God, but hey, can you tell us where our donkeys are? You can see where their mindset was. But I think there's something really, really neat that we can see in here that the servant says. The servant says about Samuel, the man is held in honor. All that he says surely comes true. This is proof that Samuel is God's anointed prophet. Because all that he says comes true. And guess what? The rules were pretty strict back in those days about prophets. If, the, if what you said didn't come true, you might find some rocks heading right at you. Okay? But it also says this man is held in honor. And that's going to tell us something I think we're going to look at in just a minute. Verse 7, he says, Then Saul said to his servant, But behold, if we go, what shall we bring to the man? For the bread is gone from our sack, and there's no uh, present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? Now, there's a little debate about this. Some people say, well, back then, you know, uh, the prophets charged for their um, prophecies. 
Well, when they were called seers, and the only difference between a seer and a prophet, you know, a seer kind of gives you this idea of they, they see what happens ahead of time. Well, that the prophet is, speaks of, of things that can happen before they happen. Same thing. And it may be that there were some like that, but they weren't men of God. The prophets of God did not do that. But it was a custom to bring a gift when you came to the prophet. And so this is what they're talking about. Thank you for listening to today's program. If you'd like to listen to this message again, learn more about our church in Corona, or to access archived messages, go to livingtruthradio.org and click on the church tab. You can follow us on Instagram at livingtruthcorona or download the Living Truth Christian Fellowship app on Apple and Android devices. Living Truth Radio is a listener-supported ministry. You can partner with us by donating at livingtruthradio.org. As we move into 1 Samuel chapter 9 and into chapter 10 verse 1, we can see the early story of Saul. And Saul was the king that they asked for. And, you know, when we, when we look at Saul and we see um, how he was drawn to this realization that he would be the king and, and so forth, it's, it's an interesting story. And uh, there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Becherath, the son of Aphiah, the son of a Benjamite, a mighty man of valor. He had a son whose name was Saul. The description of Saul is quite interesting. He's a choice and handsome man. There was not a more handsome person than he among the sons of Israel. From his shoulders and up, he was taller than any of the people. Saul was head and shoulders above the rest. And, you know, um, Saul was a man that I think we could normally look to as an impressive leader. He was tall. He was good-looking head and shoulders above the rest. But as we know, uh, he will not not turn out to be God's choice. Um, The man that God had in mind actually was a man after God's own heart. He was ruddy, certainly handsome in appearance, but an unexpected choice. In fact, when he will be anointed later in the book of 1 Samuel, uh, you know, each time uh, the, the, the prophet thinks oh, this is the one, this is the one, it will be no, no, no. The Lord does not look on outward appearance. The Lord looks upon the heart. And David would be that man, the youngest, the man after God's own heart, the sweet psalmist of Israel. See, it was all about his heart. Saul looked good on the outside, handsome, tall, head and shoulders above the rest. But he wasn't. God's best. And that's because we don't always measure things the way that we are supposed to measure them. We look at the cover of the book, not the contents. We look at the sparkle of the packaging, not necessarily what's in it. And maybe for us folks, it's time that we did a little heart and soul searching of our own. We tend to measure so much of life by what we're going to eat what we're going to drink, what we're going to wear, 